Okay, we're dimming the lights. Uh, thank you for joining us. So uh, today is uh, Reformation Day in some parts of Europe. And uh, this may be a good opportunity to discuss debt, insolvency and forgiveness or restructuring as it were. So uh, let me just briefly introduce the panel. Uh, so to my right is Sophie Vermeil, uh, who is a... Um, head of the uh, Droit et Croissance Rules for Growth uh, Research Institute in Paris and also works in uh, as a corporate uh, and restructuring attorney in the Paris courts. Um, to my left then is uh, Reinhard Dammann, a partner at uh, Clifford Chance um, and also previously engaged in uh, the work leading up to the latest um, EU insolvency directive, about which he will tell us more in a moment. And then uh, to my furthest right is uh, John Berrigan, uh, Deputy uh, DG of DG FISMA, uh, and uh, of course deeply engaged in the Capital Markets Union uh, agenda and uh, everything uh, in financial regulation uh, underpinning uh, monetary union. Uh, my name is Alex Lehman. I'm a non-resident fellow here at Bruegel. Um, let me very briefly get us all fired up uh, why this is an exciting topic to uh, discuss and, and review progress in. Um, and uh, preparing this, I came across some OECD um, presentations with um, zombies from some scary Hollywood movies. Um, we have some of that still in the Europe cor European corporate landscape. Um, let me um, briefly go to the um, slides that I prepared. Here we are. Yeah. Um, these are the charts you will typically see in most of the uh, analysis and, and research on this topic. Uh, there is some very um, comparable and accessible quantification on how uh, insolvency uh, regimes and restructuring procedures differ across countries covering here just Europe, but uh, this can be done across um, literally any country in the world. The World Bank does that uh, based on a stylized case, uh, some shortcomings with that, uh, which the Commission is trying to fix. Um, but it gives you a sense how uh, the process and the costs and the time spent on a typical business insolvency uh, differ across countries. And um, if you look at what the real world impact is, um, I think there are also some striking uh, differences between countries. This chart from that OECD uh, publication. I did not show you the zombies, but I'll show you the more quantitative uh, side of that. Um, shows the, the shares in capital and employment um, taken up by firms that are chronically insolvent. Yeah, So the number of measures, how you can determine that. But these are basically firms that um, should or would go out of business at some point, and uh, now this only goes back to uh, roughly six years ago or so. That shows you 
that across Europe there are really persistent and uh, long-running problems with business insolvency where either a restructuring of uh, viable businesses uh, has not happened or where businesses that are really uh, no longer viable and should be uh, insolvent uh, are kept alive. Yeah? Now, um, this is particularly relevant for young firms that would then not get access to credit and um, you know, cannot uh, obtain the, the, the labor and capital that would otherwise be reallocated across the economy. Um, so there's a very real impact of what we're about to discuss on growth, employment, and the nature of firms we have in Europe. Yeah? But uh, typically, um, you will see this issue discussed um, in the context of um, loan delinquency, uh, non-performing loans that, uh, are, that have been a big problem for banking sectors. Um, two years ago, um, the council adopted a so-called non-performing loan action plan uh, where insolvency again featured quite prominently. Um, and uh, I think it's clear that uh, both for the enforcement of, of banks' security but also for the restructuring of um, basically viable enterprises, the procedures vary dramatically. Yeah? So there has been a bit of progress on <coughs> resolution of non-performing loans. Um, an agenda that may yet come is uh, what, what in Italy would be called the unlikely to pay category of uh, distressed loans, i.e. enterprises uh, like hotels, restaurants that are distressed in their loan repayment, but basically have an underlying business that's still sound. How these can be addressed by both banks and other restructuring um, investors. Yeah? Um, now, that plays into this discussion around how uh, cross-border exposures of financial firms help in the risk sharing um, within the banking union and the euro. Um, this is an aspect that will come up, but really what we want to focus on today is um, what we see in terms of cross-border exposure of uh, capital market instruments in particular. And so I just... Uh, pulled out one chart from the uh, IMF report that was released on that topic uh, just earlier this month. And uh, that shows you, well, one key and sort of more juicy result from the empirical study showing that insolvency and debt enforcement have a key explanatory power in uh, the dispersion of funding costs for firms across Europe. And you know this more vivid chart here gives you a sense how, um, uh, in terms of basis points, so uh, hundreds of percentage points, funding costs would differ if um, the uh, quality of an insolvency regime in individual countries would converge to the top of the class. And I think more importantly to you know, us as a think tank concerned with a European integration, this chart reflects the 
cross-border exposures, the uh, cross-border holding of assets and sharing of risks through private financial claims that would result from upgrading insolvency laws. Yeah? So again, in the second bar from the left, you see that uh, reform of insolvency laws would really be quite powerful. Yeah? So this is uh, certainly not a dry and uh, legalistic topic, though we are really delighted to have two of the key lawyers here um, uh, today who have been very influential in this field. And uh, I think the challenge for us over the next good hour or so is to uh, combine that with the discussion on integration in the EU uh, Monetary and Capital Markets Union. Yeah, so very pleased that John could join us here. So uh, with that, let me hand over to, to Reinhard and give a bit of an overview of the uh, past work and the quality of uh, the EU directives that have been adopted to date and maybe the differences and the challenges you see for the next commission. Yeah. Thank you very much, Alexander. In 1510, Nicolas Copernic put the sun in the middle of the universe. It was quite a revolution. And if we look these days and look at what the European Union has done with respect to the European insolvency regulation a couple of years ago, and very recently with the directive harmonizing pre-insolvency regimes all over Europe plus the fresh start encouraging entrepreneurs uh, to be able to take more risk because there is a possibility of a fresh start and to get a discharge after three years. We are truly entering into a new world by comparison to what we have seen in the past. So really the European directive is writing a new chapter in our Copernic world, because I think we have to think from before and after the directive. And I will tell you why. If you look at the landscape today, what we have is we have very, very sophisticated, let's say the German model of insolvency regimes, where basically what is the key element is you try to sell at best conditions possible the ongoing business. And that's it. 95% or even more than that of the cases are designed to maximize the price for the creditors by selling off the business, and that's it. And if it's not possible, then you do piecemeal liquidation. Now, if you look at the other side of the equation, look at the French model, the French are trying to focus on pre-insolvency regimes, try to rescue the rescue culture. Rescue maybe at any price, maybe too high a price to pay. But that's debatable, we'll come to this. Okay? So this is basically in Europe, we have these things. And then you look at the, over the channel, you know, for the time being they are still in Europe. So if you look at England and Wales, so they have the scheme of arrangement which they rediscovered as a tool to debt restructure where they need to cram down majority-wise creditors because under the, under the London market loan documentation, unanimity is normally required in order to get a real debt restructuring done. 
which normally is blocked by one or two single creditors who always then have the possibility to block the whole process. So the, so the way that you do it is scheme of arrangement. And if you look, and then if you look at other countries, the southern Italy and Spain, there are no models. It's basically, it's a, it's, a, it's a mess, to be honest. It's a mess. So if you have an insolvency in Italy and in Spain, you try to escape, basically, this insolvency situation, because you do not know how to deal with it. The European Directives writes a new chapter because, for the, t for the first time, there will be harmonized rules. And I will tell you, there are two basic principles that will change the world in Europe with respect to insolvency, which is the best interest of creditors test and the absolute priority rule. Now, what is this basic principle about? Because you have to, what you, if you want to take something from this conference today, it is basically, first is the best interest of creditors test. You only restructure if the creditors believe that the end result under the restructuring is better than liquidation. So you need to be better off under the restructuring plan by comparison to the liquidation value. And that's basically is the basic rule. And if somebody is not receiving this, he can claim and can go to court and challenge the plan. And basically this principle is basically is going to avoid that restructuring is used just to do, non to do a restructuring that doesn't make any sense, economically speaking. You have to create value, basically. So that's the first principle. And the second principle, which is, once you enter into restructuring, which means you come to the conclusion that it's better to restructure than to liquidate and to sell off the business as a going concern, if you come to this conclusion because the value is bigger, the, the, the cake is better to be distributed, once you come to this conclusion, then you have to look at who is getting the share. How do you divide the cake? You go, you go to an anniversary and you would like to get your fair portion of the cake. That's really what I'm talking about. And the question is, how do you slice the various pieces? And the reality is, if you look at the European insolvency regulation, you've got nothing about it because it's just, heat. this regulation tells you which court is competent, which law you're going to apply, which basically a level playing field so nobody, everybody knows which court has to, to decide the case. If you look at the European directive, harmonized, which means within two years from now, we are talking about ranking, which means that you look at secured creditors, you look at unsecured, you look at privileged, and you look at subordinated creditors. And the basic rule is the first slice is going to go through for the secured ones, the super senior ones in cases. The next one goes to the rank below. But you have first to reimburse the first one. So it's no way that you can, you can imagine that somebody gets a slice of the cake before the secured, the super senior, has not been repaid in full. And that's basically the principle. And then you go through the waterfall down and you end up with the super subordinated and with the shareholder. And you see, this is basically the guarantee that the restructuring is going to follow sound financial principles. 
And once you do this, then you are the guarantee that you are not screwed in the process. Because you will get what you're entitled to get all over Europe. So if you do a mortgage loan, you should get at least liquidation value of the assets which is underlying, and you should be better off, and you should be paid in full before anybody else. That's the principle, okay? Of course, it becomes a little bit more complicated because it may well be that you're very well secured and you can wait for, let's say, three or four years, five years on the mortgage loan, and it may well be that you need to take into consideration other smaller creditors you want to pay. Which, because these people bring value to the table. The employees, the suppliers. So you have to build in some kind of flexibility, so it must be a modified absolute priority rule, whereas you can say, the court can say, for me, it matters, and the, and the banks and the bondholders, the financial creditors are in agreeing to this, because you cannot restructure business against the employees. And you need strategic suppliers, so you need to pay them. So they may not be affected at all by the restructuring. So we have a world of affected creditors and the world of creditors are paid. They are paid because they are needed. So it's a very pragmatic approach. So end result of this is, this is basically what you have to take with you this afternoon. This is the basic principle of the new Copernic world which you're entering into and which is the world which have the same rules all over Europe, which I believe is the best guarantee that this must be transposed into national law. There's some kind of flexibility because the, the, the states were crying and saying, I don't want to have some, have some liberty to transpose the stuff with some kind of flexibility, so there's room of maneuver. But these big principles are written in stone. And what I see is going to happen and I will talk to you for the last, last two minutes of some cases, because it's important to look what's happening in the real world. Look, for example, CGG. In the CGG case, $3 billion restructuring with the US and the French. The reality was everybody but the financial credits were paid. The question is, how do you treat the shareholders? In French law today, it's a disaster, because French, they have a hold-up value. They have to vote to the equity swap. So you cannot convert that into equity, so my waterfall doesn't work under French law today. So the French law system is going to change a lot. Okay? And this is going to be something that the French didn't anticipate at all. If you speak to French people today, nobody understands what's going to happen in the new Copernic world I'm talking about. But the hold-up value for the stakeholders, which are on the bottom of the ladder, our shareholders, is becoming zero or very limited because they are entitled to receive something if they bring something to the table. It may be they bring something to the table. This is for, the, for small and medium-sized enterprises where the, the shareholder brings something to the table. So, in reality, what we will see under the new directive is, I believe, a financially driven restructuring is going to be taking place all over Europe, and it's better than the English system because on the scheme of arrangement, we cannot cram down. There's no cross-class cram down. There's no class cram for shareholders today. Under the German system, we do not have pre-insolvency regimes. We have just a good functioning insolvency legislation. And if you look at the French one, the pre-insolvency is quite good, but the real insolvency law is not good. So 
If you combine this in a shaker, you go to a bar and you put this into the shaker and you, you come out with a result, it's a good drink. And I believe that the Copernic world of tomorrow is looking like the best of, of these worlds combined. And thanks to the European Union, I think we will see a new chapter of the restructuring market in the coming years, which will be very interesting. We will have a level playing field and there will be no surprises left in Spain or in Italy or in other Eastern countries where today there's no legal certainty. So these are my initial remarks and of course I'm happy to discuss this with you in more detail. Okay, thank you, Reinhard. Uh, very uplifting opening. Uh, I think the Copernican world was called the Brussels effect previously, but uh, it's uh, maybe later on you can talk a bit about how this spreads even outside the EU, yeah? All right, uh, now, Sophie, for a repost that uh, may qualify this, uh, this Copernican world a little bit. Actually, I'm not so much qualified about uh, these, the Copernic world. Uh, I, I agree with the presentation of Renato, uh, to um, most of the presentation. I will explain where I differ a little bit, uh, but uh, I have to acknowledge that uh, the work that the EU Commission has done, and after the European Union as well, was, uh, is fantastic from a French perspective, uh, because uh, we, we have um, many, many pitfalls uh, in our national law. Now, I'm, I'm going to talk about the issues that not have, have, has, sorry, have not been addressed properly uh, by the EU Commission, by the EU, European Union in general, and, and it's not mentioned in the directive. So basically, uh, the, I'm going to focus on, on, on three topics. Uh, I can't. Uh, I think it's enough for today. Uh, what I'm, uh, I'm going to say for the, f the first issue is uh, what I call the clawback action rules. The clawback rules is what happens before the pre-insolvency restructuring happens. Uh, uh, and, and we're going to see that it's a topic which is not at all addressed in the directive, and it's super important uh, for the capital market union. Uh, we are going to also talk about transparency, and I'm going to explain you why transparency is, uh, is a key element if you want to foster bond markets in Europe. And, and then I will talk about uh, the need uh, for uh, better courts in Europe on why, when we talk about insolvency law on, on resolving the difficulties of the companies, it's nice to have a, a, a nice law. <laughs> But it's not enough at all. We need to, to, to better improve the quality of the, uh, of the courts, and we will see why. So, um, Renat mentioned about uh, the importance of the absolute priority rules. And, and as Renat said, the, what we call the waterfall when we are lawyers, it's, it's really important because, uh, as Renat explained, you need to make sure that secure creators are better off that unsecured creators, and same thing with senior creators as opposed to junior creators. But what you need to bear in mind is what happens before the company files for bankruptcy proceedings. So we are before that, this period. And usually what you see is the management doesn't, want, doesn't like the idea to start uh, bankruptcy proceedings, or even pre-insolvency uh, frameworks. And what you see is you, want, you see strategies uh, in order to favor uh, some creators over other ones. And why? Because sometimes, like, usually banks have more information than bondholders. So they may try to get something which is not in, in accordance with the waterfall 
Sometimes banks are unsecured, like bondholders, for instance. And you can, you can even see some strategy where basically you see uh, LBOs, so you see the, the equity firms like the shareholders, they, they, the, they try to get a distribution of dividends even though the company is already leveraged and you may think that the company is insolvent. So that's why it's super important to have what we call clawback rules. You need to make sure when you file for bankruptcy proceeding that the courts can look at what is going on before and can unwind the transaction which are not in accordance with the waterfall. And that's a topic which is not addressed at all in the directive. So basically it's important that before the bankruptcy proceeding, I said, before the restructuring process, we can unwind the transaction in violation of the absolute priority rule. In France, the, the court can only look at the situation after the company is declared cash insolvent. But what we mean by that is when there is, uh, uh, when the loan, basically, uh, th there is a default on the loan. But we can see situation where the company is in servants in the sense that we know that the company will not be able to pay its debt in two years' time because there is a, a payment term that it's, it's too high. And, and the, the company is not in default, legally speaking. But the company is going to deploy the strategy to favor some creators over other creators or may favor the shareholders. So the, so, so the beginning of what we call the suspect period the cash uh, insolvency, cessation of payment under French law, is too late. In Germany, as far as I'm aware, it's what we call the balance sheet insolvency. So there's the time where the management is forced to file for bankruptcy proceedings. But balance sheet insolvency is when you look at the assets and, you say, and look at the liabilities and you realize that the liabilities are greater uh, than the asset. But the, the liability may not take into account the cash flow the, 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 the future cash flows of, of the company. So that's why I think the, the, the test for the beginning of the suspect period, the best one is in the US, is basically when you anticipate, when you do a discount cash flow analysis, and you anticipate that the company won't be able to pay its debt, and that should be the beginning of the period where basically the court can look at the transaction which have been done, and, and look, should be able to unwin some of the transaction. And that really is super, super, super important, especially, I think, for bond markets. I need to go a bit quicker, I think. Uh, I've already said, so what kind of transaction we can see? I've already mentioned one. So, so basically, when uh, the shareholders uh, decide to uh, leverage, again, a company which is already super leveraged, in order to get a distribution of dividends. And we realize that two years after the company defaults, too much debt, it's important that the courts can basically ask the shareholders to give back the money. That's what we call uh, a dividend recap uh, in the LBO transaction. The other kind of example we can see is normally you have unsecured uh, bank loans. And the banks always know, as I said, that the not the true situation of the company, because sometimes the management tries to hide uh, the level of difficulties, but the banks have a better idea than the bonds, typically, about the, the true nature uh, of the situation. And usually what you can see, what can happen, not usually so, but you have unsecured bank loans, and suddenly they reissue secured bank loans in order to refinance the unsecured bank's uh, loans. 
so you can see that basically banks were unsecured, pass you with bonds, and suddenly they become secured over the bonds, whereas when we, they do that, they know that the, the, the company won't be able to pay all its debts. And that's an issue. That's a change of the waterfall at a time where we can say that the company won't be able to pay its debt. Of course, there is a time period that should apply. You, you cannot unwin all the transactions, and it's always difficult to determine the moments at which the, the, the company cannot pay, uh, can no longer pay its uh, coming uh, debts. And, and usually, you have to apply a certain period of time. Usually, it's one year, and when you can say that if there's a fraud, you, can go, you may go to up to two years. Uh, it's, as I said, uh, super important to trade it, uh, as, as Renard said, that the, the shareholders, they are the most subordinated creators. And it's really important to understand that. That's, that's an idea which is obvious for economists and people from the finance industry, is not obvious for lawyers in Europe today. And if there is one thing to, to really uh, keep in mind for the lawyers is that it's really this principle uh, which was a major issue uh, in France. And that's why in France, five years ago, when we wanted to introduce the concept that Renal explained in the directive in, in national law five years ago, there was, an, there was a, a refusal by the State Council uh, because some lawyers believed that uh, shareholders were not subordinate creators. And that's something we, we need to, to fix definitely. Um, there's, you need to there's one point that also which is uh, not addressed properly, that when we talk about creator protections, we talk about, of course, the insolvency law. Insolvency law is there to coordinate creators and to protect creators when the company defaults. But there is, in national law, also the company's law. Uh, and we have the rules for, for instance, to distribute dividends. And these rules in our national laws in France, but also in the other member states, are old laws. There's some restriction to reduce, uh, to limit distribution to, of dividends in favor of creditors. We believe they work, but they do not work anymore in the world where there is a lot of uh, financial innovation. So we have a kind of conflict between insolvency law, uh, not conflict, discrepancy between insolvency laws and company laws. When you look in the US, they, they have gotten rid of what I call the, the rule of the, uh, the, the legal capital. They don't have any more capital, uh, share capital as the concept that we have in, in, in Europe. And they, they, the protection of the creators is ensured by the rule of insolvency law, and especially the clawback rules I've mentioned. So they look at what have you done in the past and, they, and win the transaction. In Europe, we still have rules which prevent company from doing certain other things, like distribution of dividends when there is not enough uh, distributable uh, um, results. But I believe that this rule have more cost than benefits. And there was a debate, uh, I would say 10 years ago, at the, at the level of the EU Commission to get rid of the concept of legal regime. And we, and we need this deba debate to be bring back again on the table, because we need to harmonize properly the different national laws in order to create, uh, uh, um, uh, create a, a protection for creators which makes sense by looking at all the dimensions of the law. So that's basically the, the one. 
So uh, I've mentioned I will go a bit quicker. So um, it's, uh, there's one article in the directive, article number 19, which is super important uh, for uh, considering what I've just said, is the one we said that uh, basically, which creates duties of directors when there is a likelihood of insolvency. So basically we say that the directors should have some duties towards creators in the vicinity of insolvency. That's something which may be obvious, because that's a time basically where we can think that shareholders have no longer any basically claim in the business because they are out of the money. And it's basically the creators should be the new shareholders. But that's something which is far from being understood properly in some country especially uh, in France. And it's important to have this kind of rule because you understand that if you put these kind of duties uh, on directors, they will be more careful uh, and, and they will make sure that they not to deploy, in order not to deploy strategies which would lead to a change of the waterfall, as I explained just before. So it's important that directors are held responsible when they change the waterfall before filing for bankruptcy proceeding, basically. So the US, I, I believe, have the, they have the, be the best system that we can see, that we call the US fraudulent transfer law, for instance, can allow courts really to uh, uh, claw back uh, um, um, distributions which have been made unfairly uh, to shareholders. And it's not, on, they can claw back uh, even distribution when the shareholders are not aware that the company is insolvent. So it's not important that they know or doesn't know. What is important is the waterfall. In my country, it's impossible. So that, that's why it is. The second point I wanted to mention, which is completely also uh, uh, forgotten in the directive, is the need for transparency. Why we uh, overlooked this issue? Because we live in Europe where basically most of the financing are, uh, are banking financing. And, and we, we live in a world where transparency is not so important, where banks provide the finance. But I understand that the, the goal of uh, the uh, EU Commission, especially FISMA, is to create a capital market union. So we want to foster uh, primary bond markets and what we see during the big cases, and not only CGG, but uh, there is one big case at the moment, France, like a casino rally, we see that when it involves bondholders, we see a lot of uh, asymmetry of information between certain creators and other creators. And it's important to understand that if we do not uh, create a, a, a level of transparency, a, a, play, a level playing ground, I mean, you see that usually banks uh, take advantage of the situation to the detriment uh, of bondholders. Uh, for instance, uh, they can uh, reach a deal uh, with, the, with the debtors, uh, without, uh, which, in, which includes some side arrangement that the bondholders cannot be aware of. Uh, for instance, they, in, in, even before a pre-insolvency framework, a formal pre-insolvency framework, it's possible for, for instance, I'll give you an example, what we see sometimes, we see uh, banks getting uh, some mandates to organize MNS sales. So you have a, a company which is uh, in difficulty, 
This company has some uh, assets which are valuable. It's, uh, it's selling those assets makes completely sense in order uh, to deleverage uh, the company. And the, the banks and the debtor are going to agree to some extent to a restructuring of the debt. Uh, but in fact, there's one part of the deal which is not clearly mentioned is the fees that the banks are going to get to organize the sale of assets. And of course, the bondholders cannot get the fees. So whereas the bondholders may think that they are prior pursue with the banks, in fact, you see that in the shadow, uh, there is some uh, side arrangement. And that's why, and maybe that's where Reynard and I were going to differ uh, today. It's about the, the why I believe that uh, in France, we favor confidentiality. We have these principality frameworks, which, um, uh, which are confidential. And the rule, the law is really, really harsh for those which breach these confidentiality rules. And I believe that in the shadow, basically, there is some arrangement which are not uh, good for bondholders. And at the end, if we want to favor bond markets, we need to change that. Um, so um, we need to make, so it's, I think I've mentioned that. So what we see is, uh, obviously, if there's no transparency, you see impatient creators to get something sometimes in, before the, the, the creators which are more patient. Is it normal? Not, of course, if the, those impatient creators are not uh, basically senior to the other one. And that's why uh, delating, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, delating the time, postponing, sorry, the time uh, at which uh, there's a transparency and, and, and basically all the uh, information are known to the market may not be that great. So basically, uh, what we see, uh, especially what we call, in France, we call the confidential, uh, um, so we see mandat ad hoc, et, uh, it's a special pre-insolvency, basically, uh, um, framework, and there is this confidentiality rules. And what you see is not only, of course, uh, a climate of distrust, if some, uh, of course, the bondholders are not, I mean, sometimes the committee of the bondholders can be part of this kind of framework, but it's very complicated to keep confidential. So if the bonds are public, it's, it's nearly impossible to use this kind of framework. And, and, uh, and basically what you see is uh, during this negotiation, you see there is no competitive market because it's not fully recognized. Uh, that the company is in difficulty. And usually the company in these times need money. That's what, well, you need new money in order to, to, to keep going. And if there is no transparency, uh, if it's not officially recognized that the company is in difficulty, what you see is only insider can offer new money to the debtors. So insider are the, are the, are the current creators. And what you see, I don't have the statistic because it's super hard to have statistics about this issue in France, but as what I see as a lawyer is I see that the price for the new money, and usually it's provided by uh, hedge funds, but sometimes even banks can provide, it's really, really high. And you can wonder that, I mean, I mean what would have happened if the process would have been none to the public? It would have uh, allowed, uh, 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 I mean, a competitive process uh, to, to, to be organized. Also, 
What you see is uh, a confidential proceedings is also a way for the management of the shareholders to keep control of the company. Because, and, and, and because basically they, they try to maintain a level of opacity in order to pretend that it's going to be okay, of course, when it, what is, when it may not be okay at all and on, on 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 the company is bound to default. And so by favoring situ a situation which, uh, where there is a total opacity, you basically postpone the time at which you, you organize the crime done of the shareholders, so you organize a debt equity swap, and when you basically can make sure that companies do no longer are zombies. I may have to go quicker. Uh, yeah, just uh, another minute or two. Uh, yeah, so I'm gonna, yeah. uh, so the, basically that's what I want to say about uh, transparency. And the last point is the importance of the courts on the, on the insolvency practitioners. We, as I've mentioned, the, the balance sheet of the company that, um, that we see now is super complicated, with waterfall, very complicated, and so on. You can't have local courts dealing with these kind of companies. What is uh, important to bear in mind is that in the US, you have two main courts only which deal with big cases. You have the Southern Districts of New York, and you have the Delaware. Only two. So when General Motors filed for bankruptcy proceeding 10 years ago, I was involved in the case. Even though General Motors were very far away from the district south of South District of New York, they filed there. In, in Europe and in France, we have rules uh, which are uh, provided by the EU regulation, which uh, create what we call the, the COMI. Uh, we, uh, the, the COMI basically forbids uh, the, some companies to file where they want. I think we need to change this approach, and we need to understand that the forum shopping can be uh, something which is good, especially uh, for the markets. Last thing I wanted to say is what is going to happen after Brexit. Um, the, the Dutch right now want to promote Amsterdam as the, the new hub to organize uh, European restricting cases, to deal with European restricting cases. I think that, as a French, I, I think believe the Dutch law is better than the French one, the current one. Uh, but uh, I have to say that the Dutch law favors uh, too much bankers, so the banks. And if we want to foster bond markets, I believe that the U.S. approach is better. So basically, that's what I want to say. Okay, thank you. Even though both Delaware and Amsterdam lie by the sea, so there may be a sort of openness to fresh solutions. But wonderful to, you know, come after Reinhardt and uh, highlight some aspects um, that that may need to be refined here. Yeah? Um, okay, uh, John, how does this all tie in with the more transparent, market-driven financial integration the Commission seems to promote? Okay, well, thanks, Alexander, and thanks for the invitation to come here. Um, having listened to Reinhardt and Sophie, there are some confessions in order. Firstly, I am uh, not an insolvency expert. I am not even a lawyer, and I don't work in DG Just. I am a financial sector economist. I love working with lawyers, but I'm not sure they always love working with me, but I love working with them. Miriam can confirm. But I'm also a macroeconomist, so I want to look more at general effects than specific effects. So what I will do now is widen the focus out, and I'm going to try to give you a little bit the political economy of this 
the context, the political context of this discussion, which I have to say this discussion has not improved my mood very much, but uh, still uh, we, we have to remain uh, ambitious. Maybe I'll start by just saying a few words about the CMU project itself, and that, then we can see where the insolvency kind of regime changes would fit into that. Um, I mean, we see CMU as a kind of key element of our strategy because it ticks a lot of boxes for us. So it's good for growth because it's more efficient in allocation, it's good for resilience because it diversifies funding and promotes risk sharing, it's good for convergence because we economists know there are non-linearities in the relationship of financial development and economic development, it's good for transformation so it allows a move to sustainable finance, digitalization, and it's good in general for economic security because it helps to have a capital market, uh, helps to boost the role of the euro and, and give some security to the European economy in a geopolitical sense. And all of those things help with EMU. So this thing is pretty high on our agenda. It has been very high on the agenda for the previous commission and I can predict with reasonable certainty, even though I can't prejudice this, that it will remain high on the agenda for the next commission. Now, the previous commission launched this plan in 2015 and we had then had a mid-term review. We had about nine priorities in the end and over 70 actions. Inside that, there were a couple of insolvency actions. They kind of got a bit lost, I think, in the trees, if I'm honest. And they were never one of the ones we identified as low-hanging fruit, which is just as well because we discovered there were no low-hanging fruit at all in capital markets. We've worked hard to deliver all of this, and I think we, and at least from the Commission side, can say we've delivered the vast majority of the actions that we promised, including in the area of insolvency. But the kind of in the key elements of the legislative proposals, which were the key elements, I think they came slower than we expected and they were often significantly diluted in, in co-legislation. And that also involves the two legislative proposals for insolvency. So what we put on the table was not exactly what we got in, in the end. Now it's too early to assess in any way definitively the impacts of what we've done in CMU. But you know, I've been on panels all of this year getting pretty trenchant feedback from people like you. And I think, you know, it's fair to say that at best the assessment is mixed. We have a kind of half glass, half a glass full type of assessment. We're getting three main criticisms, and I give you this because I want to come back to an insolvency context. One is narrative, so we lack narrative, we lack prioritization, and we lacked ambition. And I think any follow-up to CMU must, must address these criticisms. So when we go forward now, we're going to have to be clear in any narrative what measures we are proposing and why. And if we're going to propose insolvency, we will have to position it in that narrative. So these kind of discussions are important in, in that context. Then we're going to have to prioritize those measures. So where will we position insolvency if we position insolvency in those lists of measures? And then we have to define ambition. And this is interesting because what I'm picking up from the criticism is that you don't, we, we in the Commission have a tendency to define ambition in terms of speed. So I will deliver you something in a year or even six months if I can do it. But actually what the markets are telling us is that ambition is not how fast you work but where you work. 
And so insolvency may fall into that category of even though a slow-moving process, still an ambitious place to work. So we may need to redefine a little bit what we mean by um, ambitious. There is some discussion about possible rebranding of CMU, new name. This could be useful, but I mean, I'm always struck by the fact that CMU, and I'm old enough to know this because I worked on the first one, is not a new project. CMU is basically building a single capital market for Europe, and we started this, believe it or not, in 1999. And we've had several attempts since, CMU being the latest one. And I see two broad categories of measures in building a capital market for Europe. There are measures which reduce frictions between national, existing national markets. And in the context of insolvency, of course, you could say, okay, let's take 28, 27 insolvency frameworks and let's see if we can just avoid the frictions between them. This is already important work, it's already very challenging work, but it's not the most fundamental. Measures of a more fundamental nature, which will truly integrate national markets, uh, are also available. And this is when you think about what actually characterizes a single market. What makes the Belgian financial market or the French financial market single? They are single laws, they are single taxes, they are single accounting frameworks, they are single, single supervision. That leads you to what you do with insolvency in this case. Are you talking about something more fundamental? Um, 29 regimes and these kinds of issues. Now, I, as I said earlier, cannot prejudice the decision of the Commission. I might have been able to do that tomorrow in a different world, but we're not even going to be able to say too much about the new Commission tomorrow. But I think any harmonisation or any approach to harmonisation of insolvency frameworks would, I think, be one of those fundamental, ambitious, but slow-paced reforms. Now, I'm glad that you presented your slides, Alexander, because I don't have to explain now why we think insolvency is important in the context of a capital market. It is, of course, because it's seen as an obstacle to investment flows across borders. Investors are discouraged by unpredictability in the costs of, of insolvency, and therefore they don't go. It's one of an, another reasons why they don't go. And I mean, this concern about unpredictability is borne out in repeated surveys we do in the markets and repeated contacts we have with the market. It's really, really high up there in terms of the obstacles that they see. And I think this report you referred to from the IMF also highlighted insolvency as one of those sort of priority, they even referred to as pragmatic, we'll see how pragmatic, but a priority area for us to work. So, before we think about how we're going to work in the future, it's worth just to look a little bit at the experience of what we have done so far in insolvency. There is, as has been discussed in the previous presentations, the Directive on Preventive Restructuring and Second Chance. This was agreed by the co-legislators in June of this year. It's a major achievement, I think, by DG Justice and by Reinhardt and his colleagues. But if we're honest, it doesn't really address what happens when a company goes beyond saving doesn't really get us into the, the core of what happens when the company fails and we get into insolvency. We made a small step in that direction with a fairly targeted proposal around accelerated access to collateral in the event of insolvency. We got a high-level endorsement for this, but in reality we met with very strong resistance from the member states. 
And this particular proposal is, I would say, in all honesty, a little bit stuck and is in the process of being di diluted considerably from the even, I think, relatively modest proposal that we put forward. Now, in some ways, this kind of resistance is not surprising to us because insolvency reforms are politically sensitive for member states. This is because they leach into other parts of civil law. So you cannot contain them in the insolvency. And they touch on cultural and historical preferences. So in short, they get to the heart of national sovereignty. So we're in the same area as taxation. I think it's also important to remember here that this, and I know this from my own experience with working with programs in countries, there is a sort of social fairness debate around this. You know, who deserves most to be protected in insolvency? Is it the creditor, where I as an economist would put behind him the saver? Or is it the debtor, or the borrower? So do we give more protection to those people who save or those people who borrow? This is a very interesting social justice discussion. I thought it would get easier in the middle of a financial crisis because I could use the stability argument Unfortunately, in the middle of a financial crisis, more people are likely to lose in insolvency on the debtor side. And so you have exactly the same argument, just a more emotional argument, a more dramatic argument, but it's the same social justice discussion. And that's a difficult one. So, I mean, does this mean I'm saying that insolvency reform is taboo? Absolutely not. Um, but the reality is that when you talk about insolvency reform in a capital market context, it does at times seem to me a clash of cultures. We are financial policy people. I'm a financial policy guy. I'm in a hurry. I'm driven by the experience of the past crisis and an abiding fear of the next one. When I meet with my friends in the policy of justice, they're driven by decades, if not centuries, I think you mentioned, of jurisprudence. They go for evolution and not for revolution. So we have this clash of cultures. Which culture should prevail, I think, is going to be a political discussion in the end. Uh, but I think it's clear which way I would go, but then I'm biased, of course. But in any case, if we're going to do this in capital market space, there will have to be a political decision on all of these things. How fast do you go? How do you find that social balance? Uh, and, and this is not going to be easy because, um, as I said, these are tricky political decisions for member states to make internally and then between themselves. And as Sophie has mentioned, insolvency reform is not just about changing laws, it's also about changing judicial arrangements. I mean, I once thought it was obvious that you should have insolvency courts until I met a judge from a member state I will not mention who explained to me that he was just wise. And I said, but, you know, can you do insolvency one day and familiar court the next day? And he said, yes, because I'm wise. So if this is where we are, we may have trouble in even changing the structure around the law. So my message just before I finish is to say that, you know, I think the next commission will keep CMU high on the agenda. We are preparing the ground for that already. We have a high-level forum underway. We, the Commission, will have to decide on the level of ambition and we will do that taking into account the degree of commitment we see from the Member States and the European Parliament. 
I think insolvency reform should be part of that agenda. But I think it would only be part of that agenda if we see a strong commitment from member states because they are going to have to address these rather difficult um, issues. And we will need a stronger commitment than we have seen around the rather modest proposal that we have put on the table on the what's called the AEC proposal. I have to say, when I listen to the, de the micro details of this, I get even more worried about this debate when we go forward, but okay. Um, just to finish one thing, I will say that even within an, 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 an the ambition of insolvency reform, you can have varying degrees of ambition. You can talk about 28th, 29th regimes. Some people think this is new, we tried it before. <laughs> And typically with 29th regimes, all that happens is that you elevate the debate to a higher level because uh, everybody wants their regime to be the 29th regime because it's the best. And so we simply have the same discussion in a different forum. The IMF has come up with some ideas around minimum harmonization, which I hear a little bit more coming through Reinhardt, which is maybe we should go on an outcome based. So what do we think is a good outcome from a procedure and reverse engineer this into whatever national. It's a clearly second best solution. I still need to be Portuguese to use this Portuguese system. I still need to be Irish to use the Irish system. But it's certainly more predictable than the current situation that we have now. So I will leave you with just the message that um, we want to, we think insolvency reform is important. We would like to put it on the agenda. But it will be very important that member states and the parliament and all stakeholders understand exactly what we're going to be doing if we start reforming insolvency frameworks. Thank you, John. Uh, Wonderful compliment to the sort of the legal aspects to match the political economy of, of CMU and the agenda for single market building and completion. Um, Shall we have a quick response from uh, maybe the two or three of you? Uh, Reinhard, what is, in your experience, having worked with the EU process in, in, in getting this last directive uh, on the books, what could be an overriding political ambition that gives the next agenda a bit of traction in, in uh, capitals and uh, the constituencies in the corporate and uh, consumer worlds. Uh, is there something that could elevate this beyond a legal discussion and a discussion of, of single market intricacies to something that finds uh, resonance with the public? Very difficult, very challenging. As John mentioned, we are touching really fundamental security laws, corporate laws, like, like Sophie said. There's a lot of things to do to be harmonized, and I don't think it is going to be done with the next years or so. So what I believe, I'm much more optimistic than John is, because I use always, as you have seen, historical metaphors. The Trojan horse, you know, when the, the Greek took over Troja, they used a trick. They used a trick because nobody had the, nobody understood when the Trojan horse was outside of the, at Portas, that this was the trick in order to conquer. The same thing is happening with the directive, to be honest. You know, the same thing because. It, you, know, you can always debate and say it's not complete. And you, know, you can say, 
hardening rules, voidance was not part of the agenda, because otherwise you have to go into real insolvency, you have to look at, you have to def define what this means, insolvency, you have, to, you have to, it's impossible, to be honest. It will take years to do so. So the way that you circle around the stuff in order to achieve what you were looking at, efficient insolvency mechanism, I'm looking at the European Commission here who's, who's smiling, because the Trojan horse effect is clearly because when the member states will have the menu and sit at the table and try to eat, they will find out that they have to translate a lot of stuff which I didn't anticipate. The principles I have just mentioned to you, they were totally absent in French law for the time being. And when French is going to transpose the stuff, they have to comply with these basic financial sound principles in favor of banks, but also bondholders, because today bondholders in France are quite protected. Where I do not agree with Sophie is, look at the documentation. The bondholder documentation, there's no covenants in there. They have no right to ask for any information whatsoever under the bond documentation because they are passive investors. Banks, if you look at bank documentations like this, you have corruption warranties, every three quarters they have to give an update, they have you know, acceleration clause, etc. If you look at the bond documentation, there's nothing in there. So the reality is a bondholder is not a bank. He has not the possibility to monitor the debtor. That's not true. It's not true. It's not, simply not true. The reality is that today in the French market, bondholders have a veto right, which is totally incredible, ridiculous. And they may be even subordinate, they have a veto right. So bonds in French market are better traded like in the, in, in the UK today. That's the reality. So they, they are over-traded. The value of bonds in the French market is much higher because they have to consent. The consensual agreement in France Unanimous consent. If one bondholder don't want to sign on the bottom, there's no, con there's no agreement. So you have to go through cram down. And in cram down, bondholders in French law have a, they have, they have the, the right to veto. Okay. Uh, so just briefly, any suggestion yeah. you could make to the commission how to overcome resistance in France or elsewhere? I think one thing is uh, the, the diagnosis. I mean, you mentioned some criteria about uh, whether or not, to show whether or not this system works or not. And you mentioned about recovery rates. Don't, do not get offended, but I'm very dubious about the way no, that yeah. re recovery rate is calculated. I think, we, in my view, there is two criteria that each member state can find. The first one is the rate of failure within the five years for the company after emerging for bankruptcy proceedings. In France, I've got some statistics uh, from earlier Hermès, one of the biggest um, insurance creditors. And basically what you see is 85% of the company which emerged from redressement judiciaire filed for uh, liquidation proceedings within five years. And it's 50% of the company which emerged from what we call safeguard proceedings. It's super high. So what does that mean? It means that the court cannot discriminate good companies against bad companies which do not deserve to be saved. And, 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 and when I talk to, when I give these statistics to the Minister of Justice, they did not really look at it. And we need to agree on what are the true criteria to assess an efficiency of the insolvency system. And each member state must collect these data and, and, and to really realize that, the, that, that this whole system doesn't work. The, uh, the, sec the second criteria is do we have a system which finance 
company, either what I call deep financing market. Debtor in financing market is when company filing for bankruptcy proceeding can easily find new financing. We don't have this market in France. There is a very vivid market in the US. It's a very good sign of the market. So it's, it's a good zone. Debtor in possession, right? So yeah. that uh, the insolvent company can continue to trade and... Uh, and it's a, it's a new financing that the company can get, even though the company is in Chapter 11. Yeah. Uh, and we don't have this market in France, even though l the law favors this kind of providers of money. It's easy to see. Do you have this market? Do you, do, do you, if you don't have it, it means that your system is not efficient. The, the second advice I can say is the you need to bear in mind that insolvency law, it's a law which applies when the contract can no longer apply because the company is in default. So why it is so hard for member states to agree, and it's why I set up my think tank eight years ago, it's because the research in Europe in law on economics, which is a research that we need to, to agree on what is the insolvency law, because if you bring in the economists on board, you can understand the impact of the law on the market participant when the contract no longer applies. So it's important to have economists, especially to design law, in order when the law is supposed to apply, when contracts do no longer apply. It's okay if you don't have any economists to design company law. I think it's better, but it's, it's okay. You can have a company law which works. If you don't have economists on board, like in France, I mean, France, the law economic movement is really bad, you have, you make bad decisions. So my advice is please fund research projects in law and economics, especially in, <laughs> in economics of corporate insolvency law, because that's what we miss in Europe. Sorry. All right, and the think tanks then ready to take of course. the commission contract. Um, no, we don't contract with the EU commission. Oh. <laughs> so I was thinking about right. uh, academics on the program. Right, and uh, John, from the experience with the more protracted corporate debt crises in, in Europe, so I'm thinking Slovenia, uh, Portugal, Spain, Italy certainly, I mean, there have been reforms over the years, no? I mean, Italy is quite upfront about the reform of its insolvency regime. Are there benefits you can point to that could inspire other countries, or is this uh, the, 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 the remnant, the, the, the aftermath of a crisis that, uh, you know, the core countries blame the, the periphery for? Uh, let me just, before I come to that, let me just respond. Having watched and listened to both Reinhardt and Sophie, I fully agree with you, you need economists around the table, because the concepts you're talking about, transparency, anticipation, discounting, these are economic concepts. And the fact that people will, draw, will draft laws, if they have drafted laws like this, I must say I'm rather shocked, but there you are. Maybe we should have had more economists around the table, 1500s or whatever. Um, in terms of reforms, a lot of reform has been done, in, particularly in, in programme countries, because it was made a condition of the, the loans. So Portugal has now one of the most modern, introduced for, by the IIMF. Ireland also reformed, Italy has reformed without a programme. But the interesting thing is that these countries reform their laws in the middle of a crisis. So they, in the case of Portugal, they immediately have 60,000 people coming into the new system, and this puts the new system under enormous pressure. 
So then when you come to say, how is it doing, it doesn't look so good because you have this enormous pressure. Also, as I said before, you cannot just reform the law, you have to reform the overall architecture. You need a judicial system that can handle the new law. So when you do this analysis, you probably get mixed results. But in a sense, it's a bit unfair because, as I said, the pressure on the new system is such that it doesn't perform as well as it would in, let's say, steady state. Then when you go back to countries who have not had crisis, of course, they don't want to change because they say, well, what's the problem? My, my framework is working fantastically. So you have to try to convince them. And this was very interesting in the NPL debate where we, we have recommendations to all member states to reform their insolvency arrangements to prevent future NPLs. Even if you haven't got them now, think what might happen if you did get them. And the reaction has been, but I don't have a problem. So why do I need to change my law? So it's the usual problem that you, you only get to change in the, in, under pressure and then the results look pressurized. And it's more difficult to convince member states in the good times to do it. We, are, do we, I mean, we have made recommendations. We have kind of showed them what happens if you don't reform in good times. And you then become unlucky enough to get NPLs in the future. You're going to have exactly the same problem as these guys had. And now, you know, if you look where the distribution of NPLs are around Europe, they, are, they have actually quite good laws in place now, but they're dealing, of course, with the legacy of the old laws in these, in these new laws. So I would argue that the reforms are very good and that the results are biased by the fact that they are being implemented under pressure. Good. Okay, so we have economists, lawyers, and a host of other professions in the room. And uh, I think, as you say, it's, it's it's really stimulating to have that interaction uh, and and you know look at the uh, efficiency and growth benefits of of good laws. So um, let me take a few questions now, and uh, please say who you are. Keep it brief and to a question and maybe identify the panelists you'd like to direct the question to. Uh, yeah, maybe all the way in the back and then here in the first row, yeah. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Good morning, uh, citizens. Angelos Harlath, Chef of Advisors. We represent the ECOWAVES movement, the pan-European and Mediterranean movement, which is based in direct democracy, in science and in ecology. I'm an engineer by science. And as we are all scientists here, we, we like the engineers, we are very structural in a lot of things. So it was very appreciated, your speech, and it was very good. But we have to tell you that there is a revolution happening, which is not the Copernicus, because it was Aristarchus who some uh, centuries ago discovered the, the central heliac solar system. And Copernicus copied this and analyzed it, of course, with a later on. This, this is a matter of science if we want to be okay. in science. Uh, about, the no. about the transparency, I agree with Sophie. Of course, it's very difficult to find the transparency on Delaware funds. Uh, so as Europeans, we have to cut the bonds with the Americans, but always as allies. So the question we are posing, it is um, what happens if there will be an insolvency in our system when already are discussing the crack of 1929? Thank you. Sorry, we didn't hear the last part. Uh, the, uh, the all around, all around these days and weeks, 
because of the weakness of the global economical system, oh, I see. which was uh, applied by the Americans by the New York uh, funds system, uh, are discussing the crack of 1929. It's an insolvency of the system. So how the regulators can react in such a thing? Okay. So if I understand correctly, uh, how well do the present laws cope in a systemic crisis and widespread corporate insolvency? Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. Uh, one thing about yeah. transparency, yeah. just to, to be, to be uh, more concrete. You are in the U.S., you, you file for bankruptcy proceeding, you basically have uh, three, four, five options in terms of platform. I mean, I mean digital platform. So you, you can, it's uh, four different companies, they compete for that. So you put your assets, uh, you mention all the assets online. And if you are uh, a bondholders living in California where the company filed for bankruptcy in New York, basically you can go online, you can, basic, you can listen to the hearing online. So you don't need to go to New York just, in, at, just to, to follow what's going on. And each state of the bankruptcy proceeding is follow, it can be followed online. We don't have this in, in Europe. And, and they won't come unless the EU Commission favors a transparency environment for bankruptcy proceedings. Okay, okay you could follow all the Bruegel uh, mm. seminars mm. online and we hope the message spreads. Uh, the next question, please. Yeah. Kurt Geisert, I am one of the guides in the House of European History. I will not deepen about Copernicus, but uh, on other topics you mentioned. If I cite you correctly, uh, there will be big changes by the directive uh, in Germany, more in France and even more in Spain and Italy. Does this correlate with the risk uh, of non-implementation? In other words, is the risk of non-implementation biggest uh, in Italy and Spain? Thank you. Okay. Very, very good question. Yeah. So, uh, question of implementation of the directive, does it give too many options? Is there a risk of uh, infringement or uh, national discretions that undermine the purpose of the directive? Right. I believe the guardian of the European world is the European Court of Justice. And, and I believe that, that the court is very respected by everybody and that the directive is going, to be, is going to be passed and that they will check whether it's correctly transposed. And I, be I, believe, I believe in the European Court of Justice as the, the real institution who created Europe. From a legal point of view, you know, because everything that's done is done by the European Justice. Okay, thank you. So, in the first instance, it would be the Commission that would check and bring, yeah, of course, infringement proceedings. We have DG Justice in the room, right? Okay, uh, raise your hand. You are on call. If you have a question, uh, you're very welcome. <laughs> Maybe a comment uh, to this. This directive, although it's relatively long, it's a uh, it's designed as the old-fashioned directive, a principle-based directive. So member states will have a lot of work in yeah, transposing it because every article basically starts with member states shall and then six paragraph member states may. So it is not, some, it is not uh, the, a directive which is a quasi-regulation where you basically copy-paste into the national law. This 
will require enormous work in particular of those member states who have not who have no preventive restructuring things and i think it's more than a half so uh, doing one thing being one thing is being ambitious doing new things and there are there are still things i'll mention one which should have should be followed by the commission further on but now I think the focus from beyond the correct implementation. One thing which I found uh, shocking and shameful, and it was the first first uh, slide you saw, the data were from the World Bank. We in the EU don't have data about what's going on in insolvency proceedings. The only data we have is in the length of insolvency proceedings and that we are borrowing from the Council of Europe. And we even just, and that's my last point to illustrate you a bit the political environment. Member, uh, uh, Parliament of one member states wrote us a yellow card on the, on the proposal on the restructuring, saying that the data collection is unconstitutional under their law. So, uh, <laughs> okay. I'm not comment on that, uh, but uh, but I think we what Daman said was right. We did a trick, we stretched the member states to a limit, and I think, probably, which is probably be slightly more skeptical, there will be a big, big resistance to anything Commission proposed, because we left out the difficult things. The avoidance actions, when we were having the experiment, like, okay, we might, get, we might get it in. The resistance from member states was so, so big that we didn't put it in. Uh, we were envisaging putting special uh, insolvency courts because you have special IP rights courts, which is a protection of your own right. Insolvency court is something you protect more a general interest. It has some macroeconomic aspects, absolute no-go. So uh, it's finding the right place because uh, adding the things will be absolute cold shower from the council and say, you don't do that. Uh, it will stay there. So it's about finding the good, and I have to say, we found the good strategy to pass through what was possible, avoiding the things which were not impossible, which is not to say that we should, we should stop, but we should stop uh, pursuing that. I think we need to pursue on the data because that, that's a big shame, but anything else, the easy things were done and were pushed through. Okay, thank you. Fascinating insight from the coal face of drafting uh, the uh, directives. Uh, John had a comment to that, and if I may add a quick question from an economist's perspective, we think of a sort of competition of systems. Is it possible that as the UK leaves, um, some member states emerge with a more conducive uh, pre-insolvency restructuring regime and insolvency regime that uh, attracts not the SMEs but sort of mid-sized companies that can shop around for the right regime and that, uh, you know, similar to the UK presently, uh, a new system takes on a bit of a model character and, you know, maybe gradually brings others with it. John. I mean, just, just two uh, comments, just to follow up on that. I mean, I think there is a problem of data, although I think there are data around, they're just not available. So we, we are looking to see if we can find ways that are supervisory data, but these, of course, are proprietary. 
we are seeking ways. What I don't want is to get into a world, and as I told you, I'm a financial guy, I'm in a hurry, where someone tells me you have to wait 10 years to get the data before you do analysis of what needs to be done. This to me is kind of self-defeating. The other thing is, of course, the member states are extremely reluctant, but it depends which part of the member state you're talking to. So you have a situation where member states are simultaneously reluctant to go forward on insolvency, but are pushing very hard to go forward on capital markets union. So what we need to do is just to bring these two things together and say, well, okay, you know, you choose one or the other. If you want your capital markets union, you're going to have to make some move on insolvency. Now, we had a similar experience with taxation. You know, we always in the Commission say we don't touch taxation because the member states don't like it. Interestingly enough, when we brought the financial sector and the tax people together and explained, again in a, in a capital markets context, that we wanted some adjustments in withholding tax procedures, we had the first signs of a change, the first signs of a willingness to work on withholding tax. It was not a fantastic step forward, it was a code of conduct, but it was the first step forward we made in 30 years. So I think when we talk about member states, we have to be careful what we mean about member states. Because if we're in the Justice Council, we will have one discussion. If we're in the ECOFIN, we'll have another discussion. And at some point, these discussions have to be brought together. If you want a capital market, that is the capital market you, you say you want, then you cannot say, I'm not prepared to work on difficult issues. Because capital markets require work on, on difficult issues. In terms of competition, it's possible. I mean, I'm not going to speculate, but I think there is a degree of competition going on now between member states to attract business. We have made it clear this cannot be done on the basis of regulation, so we will not allow forum shopping in the area. We, we, we have a single rule book. So no Delaware in Europe? No, no, no Delaware in the area of regulation. What we do not cover, of course, is uh, financial law. We do not cover that. And um, it might well be that member states will compete in, in their law to replicate what the UK was providing. But that, I think, is a more likely incentive to harmonisation, actually, than um, anything else. Okay. Interesting. Right. Um, Reinhard, uh, law firms aren't worried about uh, the UK dropping out. Um, can the UK, as a third country with the Brexit deal still provide legal services or is this uh, something that now needs to be replicated within the EU27? The answer is yes. I, I think the world will stay as it is, to be honest. I, I do not expect big changes. Uh, I think the hard Brexit is unlikely to happen and there will be a negotiated Brexit where everybody will agree and I think the key element for competition is the legal system of the courts. And what the English are selling is not their law, to be honest. They are selling their legal system, which is the courts. The efficiency and the trustworthiness in the courts. It's an expensive system, very expensive, but it's a good system. And I think the people who want to compete with it, they have to provide a legal system of courts, English language, English language, court, proceedings, discovery, and foreseeability and legal security with respect to the outcome that, that the judges are going to render foreseeable decisions. And this is why arbitration is so interesting these days. And I think the courts in Europe who are copying the English system and trying to compete with the English court system, these are the going 
the winners of this competition in the next couple of years. Okay, fascinating. Thank you. That's uh, interesting aspect. It's not just the laws. No, 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 no. Uh, it's the system. By the, yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, maybe can we have concluding comments as we're coming to the end? Um, uh, is 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 there another? Pressing question, or we give uh, Sophie uh, the last and unless there are other comments. <laughs> any other any other questions from the audience? No. Okay, good. Uh, Sophie, uh, final thoughts. What's uh, what do you take away back to Paris? Uh, no, I'm I'm quite happy to 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 hear that the EU Commission is so keen on moving forward and keep going and keep pushing <laughs> in, uh, in order for the capital market union to be improved. And uh, um, I believe that uh, it's really the Europe can force the member states to, to move forward. And it's not, the initiative is not so much uh, at, the, at the level of the member states. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's really important that it comes from, from Brussels, basically. Okay, well, with, I think that's a wonderful point to end and a sort of inspiring call to action to Brussels. When do you ever hear that? That's, uh, um, okay, can I um, close this here? I think it's, it's been a really fascinating discussion and uh, I at least learned a great deal from, uh, you know, how the economics informs the law to some extent, but, uh, you know, law is shaped by very deep-seated um, national uh, preferences and, 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 and long-standing systems. So um, thank you all for coming. Um, uh, we certainly wish well to the new commission and uh, you know, encourage uh, you and the colleagues to draw on the good work of the legal community and think, think tanks for that matter. And uh, yeah, we uh, certainly will continue this here at Bruegel. We certainly hope to look at similar other aspects of building a, a, a common market for uh, finance, capital markets, and, and enterprises uh, for that effect. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again here at Bruegel. Uh, for now, thank you all for coming, and thank you to John, Sophie, and Reinhardt for making the time available. Thank you. Okay. Have a good rest of the day. <laughs>